0: my brothers and sisters, God is a good and gracious God. So here we are, uh, Genesis 34, and uh, uh, we we got quite a bit to do here, uh, as you can see. Let me just, um, we of course will read all the way through uh, this passage uh, as we work our way through it, verse by verse. Let me just give you a flavor of it, I'll just read a handful of verses uh, this morning. Uh, Genesis 34, we'll begin in verse 1, of course, Uh, hear now the word of God. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Let's stop there, shall we? Father, uh, we're thankful for your word this morning. It is a, I think, a very difficult passage for us to consider. It is a passage that is uh, overflowing with sin. And yet it is a passage, I think, that declares our great need for grace. And so um, I do pray for help this morning as I I would teach it faithfully we think it's in your Bible for a reason, even if it's uncomfortable. We think it is for our good to study it and consider it. And I pray as we do that you would open our eyes to see the truths in it, open our minds to understand, and open our wills to embrace what we see here. And that for all of us, as we consider these, these words, we'll be drawn into a closer relationship with you, a more full, more full-hearted commitment. To Christ our King, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was about the year 1000 AD uh, when King, the tomb of King Charlemagne was opened, about 180 years after he was buried. One account of, of that discovery writes, surrounded by incredible treasures sat the skeletal remains of King Charlemagne upon his throne his crown still upon his skull, and a copy of the Gospels lying in his lap, with his bony finger resting on the text, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, and yet forfeit his own soul? I'm not sure why they chose that text for that skeletal finger to be pointing to that, and perhaps that's an indictment of Charlemagne himself, this man indeed had gained the whole world, that's Hope he did not lose his soul in the process. But I do think it is a good word for us today. I think in many ways, even as I spent a a couple weeks following Jesus in the Middle East and now I come back to America, it it is just uh, more clear to me some of the issues that we have in our own uh, religious expressions of our Christianity. It seems to me, in other words, that we in the West have in many ways domesticated Jesus. And that Jesus here kind of exists to help us get things from the world. Like we come to Jesus and he helps us get our dreams and our plans and and all the rest. When the reality, the Bible presents Jesus as a king. And as a king, we exist to obey him. We exist to serve him and to follow him. When we come to Genesis 34 and and there's somewhat sadness in our heart because we've seen Jacob, who starts so awfully, doesn't he? Terrible, wicked, lying, deceiving man. And now we've seen him making strides with God and getting closer to God and and trusting in God more faithfully. And and we're excited to see his commitment to God grow. And yet now, about a decade later after that encounter with Esau we, we saw a few weeks ago, we find him once again living not for God, but for his ease, for comfort. If you will, Jacob seems to be living for the world. In a half-hearted obedience. We're saddened because we see the end of chapter 33. Let me just draw your attention there. Notice what the scripture says in verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, on his way from Patamaran. And he camped before the city. And, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi. Israel. And so we find Jacob settling there in Shechem, don't we? He's buying some land, he's building a church, if you will, and there he is pitching his tent in Shechem. The problem is, is that's not where Jacob is supposed to be. Now we know this because we go back to Genesis 28 and that wonderful passage of God appearing to Jacob when he's fleeing the promised land and that stairway to heaven, I think it's Jesus who comes to him and he says to Jacob at that time, listen, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to bring you back to Bethel. Bethel is going to be very important in Jacob's life. And then after 20 years later, remember he's got his, his, his wives and his girlfriends and his 12 children. And he's got all his money and he's working hard. And he's accumulated everything. And God in, in Genesis 31, 13 says, I'm the God of Bethel. Okay? Where you anointed a pillar, now return. So God has summoned him back to Bethel. And yet where do we find Jacob? We find him not in Bethel but in Shechem. About 20 miles short of Bethel. Right? Not, not quite close to where he's supposed to be, but not quite where he's supposed to be. And there he's purchasing land from King Hamor. He's settling down next to the city. It might be because we're not told the city, of course, would present opportunities, present culture, present uh, business uh, um, opportunities. And here Jacob has been living for at least 10 years. We know this because of the age of his daughter Dinah. You see, Jacob, we might, we might put it this way. Jacob at this point has almost obeyed. But not quite. He's crossed the Jordan. That's good. He's back in the promised land. That's good. Just a day's journey shy of what God has called him to do. We might call this compromise. And we'll see that this compromise in Jacob's life is going to lead to utter disaster. And yet we shouldn't just look at Jacob's life. I think we should consider our own. Because sometimes we think like Jacob that, you know, I'm close enough to what God wants me to do. I'm doing pretty well. And I I would uh, suggest to you that this is how sin kind of begins in our life. We become content, coming up a little short and a little short. We say to ourselves, "It's no big deal. Things could be worse, right? It's just a picture on a screen. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sleeping around. It's not that big of a deal, It's just a little gossip. I'm not really even lying. I'm telling the truth about this person. It's not that big of a deal." Right? I should be teaching my kids to, 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 to read scripture and to pray, but, but I'm not teaching them immorality, so you know, I'm doing okay. Right? I should be obeying my parents. I should be honest with my parents. You know, it's just a small lie. It's not that big of a deal of a, of a lie. This is how sin always begins in our life, just coming up a little bit short, just a little bit short. No one, no one walks off to the cliff and jumps right in. It's just one little step at a time, one, well, coming a little shorter, a little bit shorter, one day at a time, and like Jacob, many people, and some of you could testify this, you wake up one day and you wonder, how in the world did I end up here? How did I get to this destination? Well, it's just one step at a time. So Jacob pitched his tent near the city. I, I don't know, does that remind you of any, anyone we've seen in our study of Genesis? It's been a while since we consider the life of Lot, but do you remember Lot? Right? Lot, Lot like the prosperous city of Sodom, what harm can come from living nearby, and so we we read Lot, pitch his tent towards Sodom, and a little bit later we find that Lot is actually now living in Sodom, and then finally we find that Sodom is now living in Lot. And that's just not Lot, that's just not Jacob, I mean, every person I think we study in this book, Adam, Cain, Noah, I mean, uh, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, certainly Jacob, Laban, right, what do they all have in common? Well, they're all sinners, right, kind of like you, and me, we're all prone to sin. Now, you, you might at this point protest and say, wait a second, pastor. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in church listening to this lousy sermon. Okay? You know, I'm doing pretty well, right? I mean, we're, we're studying Genesis 34, and I'm here. Okay? Right? I'm a religious person. So What's this whole thing? I'm a sinner. Well, you notice Jacob's pretty religious, too. See, then verse 20, he built an altar. And that's pretty good. First thing he does, build a little, little altar. And yet we're going to find him in this chapter mired deep in sin. In other words, what Jacob tells us amongst many things is you can be religious and sin big time. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise. In fact, I think religion often can be a wonderful cover up for wickedness. And we just fool ourselves that everything's okay. But after all, I show up in church and, uh, and all the rest. You can be religiously active and have no real relationship with God. Right? And I think this is perhaps what we see in Jacob's life right here, and perhaps God might expose that in your life. I think it would be good to consider your life this morning. God, where am I coming up short in your plan for me? Are there areas I'm compromising in, in, in my relationships, in, in how I handle money, and how I'm raising my children, in, in the words I'm using, in the desires of my heart? Have I come up short? Have I not quite made it to your good plan for me? And I hope that if that's the case, Jacob's example would, would help you Press on to Bethel, if you will, as we consider the cost of compromise this morning from Genesis 34. We'll do so in three scenes. Scene number one, sin from outside. Scene number two, sin from inside. And scene number three, grace from above. And I, once again, I will let you know that my, the first point of my sermon is about half my sermon. So don't freak out when it goes along. okay? We'll pick up speed in points two and three. So here we are. We begin with sin from the outside. Note verse one. Uh, the sad tale begins with these words, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the woman of the land. And so while they're living in Shechem, Dinah goes to visit the, with the local girls. Okay? And uh, she does, by the way, have 11 brothers, no sisters. So I can understand her desire to have some female friends. But this is going to put her in grave danger, as you'll see in a moment. There is a reason in this culture and perhaps good for our culture as well, that girls of marriageable age um, were not allowed outside their people without a chaperone, without being in groups, without help. And in fact, you remember the story of Boaz and Ruth, and Boaz said to Ruth, he said, listen, stay with my young women. Remember he said that? I've ordered my men not to touch you, but hang out in this group. It's almost as, even in Israel, right, we get a sense that away from this people, he says, I can't protect you, it's it's a dangerous world out there, and Dinah is going to go from the safe place of being with her family into this city, which is going to be full of trouble. I don't think there's any indication she's looking for that trouble, Um, but this 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl that most scholars believe uh, heads into the city to hang out with the Canaanite girls. Now, uh, I, I, I just want to pause here, and it just uh, <laughs> I, I, have, I have teenage girls, so this is kind of, this, I, I've talked to my teenage girls about this last night, i talked to all my children about this last night, and there's, even a, in, in verse 1, I think God has so much to say for us, and let me just note quickly, three observations. First of all, I, I just want to encourage you dads, and I say this from my 10 years of experience as youth pastor, dads, you need to love your daughters well. Notice she is called the daughter of Leah, not the daughter of Jacob, which we expect to have written. This is the Bible's way of saying dad's not really interested. He's too busy at work, too busy with his hobbies. She's the daughter of the unloved wife, Leah. And I I think it will be clearly seen she is an unloved daughter. And And I will just tell you, dads, if you're not engaged in your girl's life, If they are not receiving affection from daddy, they will find affection somewhere else. The second thing I I note here is, uh, and I shared this with my girls last night, uh, young ladies, please be wise in this world. I I don't in any way want to lay any blame at the feet of Dinah for what's about to happen to her. Nevertheless, we need to teach our young people to be careful who they are with and where they go. I think Dinah is perhaps maybe naive, thinking, you know, I'll just go, I'll go to the party, it'll be fine. Right, we'll go over to his house, watch a movie, nothing's going to happen. This, this world is a wicked world, and we need wisdom to navigate it. Third, I would suggest, and I think this will bear it out as we study this passage, parents, you need to set boundaries for your kids. She should not be out in a pagan city by herself. She, sh- she should have a chaperone. She has 11 brothers, by the way. Okay? And they like to fight, okay, as we'll see in a moment. So they, the, the, you could have sent one of them, and maybe she protests. Maybe she says, so embarrassing, Dad. Does he really have to come? I can take care of myself. Maybe she even says, I hate you. You're ruining my life and all the rest. Okay? Listen, parents, you know more than your 14-year-old girl. Okay? She doesn't think you know more. But you do know more and God has given her to you and you to her for a reason that you might guide her and protect her to use the knowledge you have to set up boundaries that are important for her. I think it was Mark Twain who said, when I was 14 years old, I thought my father was a fool. By the time I was 21, I was amazed how much he learned in the past seven years. Okay? Okay? Right? They they might think you to be a fool. Use the knowledge that God has given you to protect your children. None of that happens, and sadly, we see the sad affairs in verse 2. And, verse, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, and uh, he seized her and lay with her, and he humiliated her. So Dinah gets dressed up to go hang out with the girls, and man, he, she catches the eye of the prince of the land. He comes by, and as many powerful men do, he takes what he wants. And we're not sure what happened. Um, it might be he just seduces the country girl, right? I mean, how wonderful would it be to flirt with the prince, right? He's I mean, so charming, and maybe he persuades Dinah that her parents' morality is old-fashioned. No one's doing this anymore, right? No one's waiting until they're married anymore. That's so out of date. All the Canaanites are doing it. Um, maybe he buys her a drink. Maybe he takes her home to hang out. Um, eventually, we see that he rapes her. This book, by the way, is 4,000 years old. And we see that there is nothing new under the sun. Right, this continues today. There is a culture amongst our young men and has been for as long as I, I know that, that their men will, are out to plunder young women's virginity. That is true. And they leave the young women distraught and confused while he becomes a hero amongst his peers. It is a wicked world in which we live in. Now, others think that this might have been much more violent. You notice the four succession of verbs in verse 2. He saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 3. It's like a little mini fall. Remember, they saw the fruit, they took the fruit, they ate of the fruit, and immediately they were humiliated. Immediately they were ashamed. And so we see this happening. This woman is utterly confused, humiliated, ashamed, unsure of what's going on, feels unclean, no doubt, not as if anything is her fault. And yet she finds herself in this this way. And yet this man is is um, now uh, is, is so excited about this woman, as you see in verse three. And his soul was drawn to daughter uh, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Again, this seems so so current to me, right, he now comes, becomes consumed with her, he, he loves her, he's speaking nice things to her, right, just to be clear, this man is a pervert, he forces this woman into bed, and then in the morning, he tells her how much he loves her, right, he has no idea what love is, and how many have walked this path, the abuser comes, the abuse happens, And then shortly thereafter, he comes under some kind of conviction. I'm so sorry, baby. I really love you, right? It won't happen again, right? You look really nice today. I mean, let's try this again. I'll change, I promise you. Meanwhile, the girl's confused, not sure what's going on, what's happening, right? This guy, listen, this guy, if a guy hurts you, young ladies, he is a bad guy, okay? It doesn't matter what he says in the morning, he is dangerous, he is self-consumed, he is evil. And I think this man is clearly evil, as you see in verse 4. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, hey, go get, this, uh, get me this girl for my wife. Dad, I want her, go get her. He's a <laughs> Prince Shechem is a spoiled brat, isn't he? Dad gets him whatever he wants. His dad's name is Hamor, by the way, which is interesting. I think it's the Hebrew word for donkey. So Shechem is the son of a donkey, okay? Or in the King James, the son of a well. You you can figure that out, okay? <laughs> right? Right? And m- many girls like I think m- many girls are think well. Well, he said he, he said he loves me, right? He has all these nice things to say about me, right? Maybe I have you know we, we've already we've already been together. Maybe no one else is going to want me, so so I should probably just marry him. Like getting married is going to fix the problem. I just want to be clear. It's not going to fix anything. This is the type of person you should run from. The last thing you want is to wake up next to this guy 50 years later. And your whole life is spent with him. And he's the father of your children. And the grandfather of your grandchildren. And I don't care if he says he loves you. Stop listening to what he says and start looking at what he does. Do you see Jesus in him? If you don't, get away from him. Well, the word finally gets back to Jacob, as you see in verse 5. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but the sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until then, until they came, and Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to, to Jacob to speak to him. Now, this, of course, is every dad's worst day. The teenage daughter's been raped by the king's son, and now the king is coming to talk to you about it. Notice Jacob does nothing at this point. The Bible says he holds his peace. He, he keeps quiet. It might be, you might initially think, well, he's just being prudent. His sons are out with the, the animals. He's waiting for his sons to gather. He's, he's, then, then he'll take action, right, just showing some self-control. I don't think, I don't think this is prudence on, on Jacob's part. I remember, uh, in, in, in just a couple chapters later, he'll find out that his son Joseph is killed, or thinks he's killed. Remember what he does at that point? He rends his garments Right? He says, I'm going to mourn the rest of the day of my life. He just weeps and weeps and weeps. We see none of that happening here. He doesn't seem horrified here at all. He's just going to keep quiet. And, and maybe he keeps quiet because he's afraid. Verse 30 is going to tell us he's afraid of, of his neighbors. We know Abraham was afraid of the Egyptians and didn't pr- protect Sarah. We know uh, Daddy Isaac was afraid in Gerar and didn't protect Mama Rebecca. And, and now we see Jacob afraid in Shechem and he's not protecting his daughter Dinah. So maybe he's afraid. I think and we'll see this, I believe, in the text, that he doesn't really care. I think that's what's happening. He doesn't care for Leah. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to care for her six sons and her daughter that she bore. And, and now he's in the midst of this family crisis. Uh, the, fi- the 11 boys are coming home, finding dad doing nothing. And what you'll see is the boys are going to step up. If dad's not going to leave, there's going to be a vacuum. Someone's going to leave. It might be filled by the wife. might be filled by a son. Someone's going to take charge And it seems to be Simeon and Levi who do so, as you see in verse 7. The sons of Jacob uh, had come from the field as soon as they heard of it. So they get word, they start running home, and the men, this is the boys, the sons, were indignant and very angry. Because he had done this outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. See, the boys are filled with anger. Now let me ask you this question. Is their anger good or bad? It's good. This is something you should be angry at. Anger is a judging emotion given to us by God that declares, that's bad. I don't like that. Anger is a protecting emotion. Love summons anger to come protect that which uh, receives the love. And they think this is outrageous they think this is disgraceful. I love this little phrase at the end of the, verse 7, that such a thing ought not be done. Like, we live in a culture with when there, <laughs> there's nothing disgraceful anymore, right? We have, listen, we have minors who are having uh, surgery to change their, their, their sex. We have minors deciding to have abortions. We're giving condoms out to 13-year-olds. And, and, and none of it's disgraceful anymore. We, we are like, who are we to judge? And we can't say anything about it. Right? You know who's the judge? I'll tell you, at least in my house, fathers who love their daughters, judges, right? and loves their sons, and explains there are certain behavior which is disgraceful. There is certain things which ought not to be done. and In fact, things get even more disgraceful, uh, believe it or not, as you see in verse eight. But Hamer spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him. To be his wife. Now, you, I would think that Hamer will be a little bit uncomfortable speaking to a dad who his, his son uh, just raped that, that dad's daughter. But he doesn't seem troubled by this at all. It's like in just another day at the office, a little business transaction you see in verse 9 make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters uh, for yourselves. Now, do you notice anything missing? in Hamer's little speech, right, like maybe an apology, uh, maybe some confession of wrongdoing, maybe some kind of restitution, instead he comes and says, listen, my, my son is really into your daughter, you should give her to him, and that she can become his wife, no, right, they, they should be, no hard feelings, they should be married, in fact, w- not just one marriage, we, we can have a whole bunch, of, we could just do this a, a bunch of times, it could be like one big happy family. You see, the, Can- the Canaanites at this point, I think, are so sexually perverse that what's happened is not not troubling to them at all. It's no big deal at all. It's, there's no shame. There's no confession. This is what we do. Right? I mean, could you imagine, like, if, God forbid, one of our girls within this little community, this Hamilton Baptist Church, was assaulted by someone outside in the world. And and the, 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 the leaders of those outside in the world came to the elders of this church and said, no, no confession at all, but said, uh, you know, can, can you give that daughter to that young man to, to be married? In fact, what we could do is you could give us all your young daughters, and, and we'll give you our young daughters, and we could all just kind of be one, right? Let me, I, I haven't asked the elders this, but I'm pretty sure we would say, we'll get a pass on that offer, okay? No, that doesn't sound appealing to us at all. No, thank you very, very much. Like, give us your daughters. I mean, I know we took one of your daughters. We'd like to do that with your other daughters, so, so can we have more daughters? And I, th- I think the right thing would be to say, uh, no, that's not going to work for us at all. But before the response comes, he sweetens the deal a little bit, as you see in verse 10. You shall dwell with us, in the la- and the land shall be open to you. Dwell uh, and make, um, excuse me, dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. So now he's uh, laying out the business opportunities. Right? Listen, uh, you, you can imagine this argument, can't you? Listen, Jacob, you're living here in a hostile land. You guys are small You guys need an alliance. You need people to have your back, and 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 you you we we can let you stay here. You could have grazing rights. You could buy more property. You could settle down here. We could become a people together. You see what Hamer is promising? He's promising to give Jacob the Promised Land. Now, someone else has also promised the Promised Land, namely God. And Hamer is saying, "Listen, I could give it to you easy. You just become one of us." It reminds me of of Satan who speaks to Jesus when he's tempted in the, in the wilderness in those 40 days of fasting. He says, listen, you, you want the nations, you want the world, just bow down to me. You don't need to go through the cross. You don't need to go through the torture and the murder and all that. Just, just join forces with me and I'll give you everything. And it's very tempting that the Lord's blessings are being compromised with this offer to assimilate together to become one people And so uh, King Hamor lays out the pitch, and it seems that Prince Shechem uh, is taking too long for him. He can't hold his tongue. So we see in verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife, okay, okay? Right? Uh, <laughs> this is stunning to me. that This, uh, this is, a, this is a, a, a rapist who's talking to the girl's dad and brothers. I mean, this is really, really bold, isn't it? And he is saying, hey, let me find favor in your eyes. In other words, hey, let's be friends. Let's hang out. We go get coffee. We go to the game together. Right? We, we could be buddies. And, and I'll give you whatever you ask. Just name it. I know you're angry, but I really, really want her. So just, what's the figure? I got the checkbook open. Let me write it out, and and we could get this deal done, right? And by the way, you think this happens today? I mean, how many rich people are accused of sexual assault, and they settle out of court, and they write the check, and everything good, problem goes away. There's no I'm sorry. There's no please forgive me. There's no this will never happen again. There's no I I don't know what happened. Um, I, I feel awful about it. It's just how much is this going to cost me? Well, the response is somewhat stunning. Things are just going to keep getting worse, by the way, just to prepare you. Um, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamer, deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister, Dinah. Notice, by the way, who's talking at this point. It's the sons. Jacob, at this up to this point, has said nothing. And Jacob will continue to say nothing until the very end. At which point we will wish he had continued to say nothing. Okay? Okay? So he holds his tongues. The boys step into the vacuum of leadership. And they lay out this stipulation. They they seemingly agree, but with this one condition. Verse 14. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you. That you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and become one people but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and we will be gone. Right? So he says, listen, we'll do this under this stipulation. You all need to be circumcised. Now to be circumcised, of course, we see in Genesis 17, is a sign of being in a covenant with God at this point. So it's, it's as if they're saying, listen, we can't do this because you're not even Christians. Right? We can't let our Christian sisters marry non-Christian guys, so you all need to be baptized. Um, you, you all need to to go and receive the sign of the covenant. Now, this is not evangelism. You think, well, are they evangelizing? No. There's like there's no hey confession of sin. There's no sacrifice. There's no obedience. There's no repentance. There's no mention of God at all. Just do this little ritual, and then we agree. Now, of course, we see we're we're, we're hinted in verse 13. It's a trap, right? They they we read they answer deceitfully. They're scheming against these guys. I wonder where they learned how to scheme. Of course, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Children watch their parents. So the trap is set. Shechem jumps in with two feet. Verse 18. Uh, The words pleased Hamer and Hamer's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So he says, let's do it all fake conversion to your faith in order to get the Christian girl, okay? You ever think that happens today? Okay. Right? You ever, you ever, people ever get, in, young people get in a relationship with a, with a guy or a girl and say, well, listen, I can't really have a romantic relationship with you. I only, uh, I am to the Bible tells me very clearly that i only to date and marry Christians. And they say, well, I, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, where do you go to church? Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting to that. Where do you go to church? I'll start going to church with you, right? You want me to get baptized? Sure, I'll get baptized, right? Think people ever fake Christianity, in order to get the girl or the boy? Yeah, yeah, they do. Be, once again, young people, be wary of entering into a relationship with someone who's not already walking with Jesus. Right? People will fake it to get what they want. And they clearly are happy to fake it. Okay? And so Hamer will get circumcised, Shechem will get circumcised. But the problem, remember the boy said, the whole town has to get circumcised. So now you need to get everyone to submit to circumcision. That's not going to be easy. But Hamer is quite a politician, as you see here in verse 20. So Hamer and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and, and, um, and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, let us give them our daughters. Now, by the way, notice there's no like mention of, hey, we got this little problem and my son did this little thing over here. They don't even bring that up. Hey, my son really wants to marry this girl. We need to do this in order for that to happen. That's not mentioned at all. He's just saying, hey, um, we, we we could be at peace with these people. You could get new wives. Isn't that wonderful? And then plus, there's this little economic boon to the city as you see in verse 23. Will not their livestock their property, and all their beasts be ours. Only let us agree with them, that, and they will dwell with us. Now, this is not what he told Jacob and sons, right? He said, Jacob, this is good for you. We want to bless you after all, and we take care of you, and you can have grazing rights and all the rest, give you a place to live. Now, he says to the city, we could exploit them. We could get all their stuff. Their livestock will become ours. Their property will become ours. Their women will become ours. So let's fake this little religion thing, and everything will become ours. Right? The old man's weak. The brothers are gullible. Right? He's not even angry about what we did to the girl. Dad didn't even say anything to us. Right? We could get it all. And they all think that's a swell idea for you. See in verse 24, and all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of his city. And perhaps we'll just stop right there to note um, that this is, a, this is a wicked world in which we live. Moses writes this story to Israelites who have been redeemed from their slavery to Egypt on their way to this very place, this promised land. And he clearly wants them to see the dangers of assimilating with people like this, right? becoming one with them. And so he lays out very clearly how sinfully wicked they are. Now we too, I think, face similar dangers of assimilating in a godless world. Is it just me or does it seem in the West, Christians are giving in left and right. right? And not just Christians, churches and, and denominations. and There are denominations now whose who's like main saying is not come to Jesus, but it's open minds and open doors and and open hearts and anything goes and God just wants to accept everyone just the way they are and we'll believe what you believe and if the world thinks this is right then we'll think that's right and we'll just continually adjust our morality and our standards to whatever the world tells us is good and whatever the world tells us is wrong, we'll agree with that despite what the Lord has said when he tells us you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. You see, there is a sinful world out there. But sadly, the sin just doesn't reside in the world. It likewise resides in God's people. As you see, scene number two, sin from the inside. Now, we've seen it clearly already in Jacob's apathy Jacob, by the way, has accepted this proposal to become one with them. He doesn't know his sons are being deceitful. So he's just going along with it. Okay, yeah, so we'll just just join with them. And we'll see the sin as well clear in the the boy's wrath. For we read on verse 25, on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. Every male in this town has been circumcised. It takes time for them to recover. this day, there have been infections, fevers. These men are unable to defend themselves. And so these two sons of Jacob slaughter every man in this town. Not, Not just Shechem, the rapist. Not just his father, who's trying to cover for his son. But every man in the entire town. You can imagine these brothers of Dinah are counting the hours, they are sharpening their swords, and on the third day they attack. We have a word for this in our day, it's called genocide. They are bursting into every home, tossing aside, screaming women and children, and running through helpless victims. They do indeed kill the king and the prince. As you see in verse 26, they killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. You notice, by the way, where Dinah has been this whole time? She's been captive in the home of her abuser, right? And so, in other words, you have sold our sister, and you won't even let her come home after that, and you think you can just write a check to make this okay? So they are furious. They're burning red-hot anger. They kill all the men, and, and, and do so by using the sacred sign of the covenant to perpetuate this slaughter. it be like asking a people to be baptized and then drowning them instead. It is utterly and despicably wicked. And it gets worse. For we read in verse 27, the sons of Jacob come upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Now here comes the rest of the boys. Okay, Simeon and Levi have done their thing. Now the rest of the boys come and like vultures descending on roadkill, they just come and go from house to house. Verse 28, they took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and the field. Right. They're taking jewelry, they're taking animals, they're taking the farm equipment, they're taking it all, including the women and the children. For you read in verse 29, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. So now we see the sons of Israel taking captives of war. These children and these widows are now captive by the very ones that made them widows and orphans. These are god 's people, by the way, who are doing this this i will be clear, but some people think this is justice, this is not justice, this is murder, this is evil right and 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 this is is if you will, this is vengeance, and though they sh- clearly should not have done this. I think we, we have to see ourselves in this in some way. We likewise are, are, have this desire for vengeance, this desire for revenge when we're treated unjustly. We want to take vengeance. When scripture tells us we must not, we are to trust the Lord and his justice. We are instead to repay evil with good, just as God has done for us. When we have been evil against him, he has come and showered us with goodness. Even as Paul writes in Romans 12 and verse 19, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So let's just be very clear, Christian, you are not morally competent enough to bring about vengeance. You will mess it up. right? When you try to, you will only compound sin. Vengeance has not been given to us. It is left in God's hands and we let him take care of it. But when they take it into their own hands, we see that sin is just spiraling out of control, and evil is being repaid with evil, and more evil, and more evil, and one sin leads to another, and to another, you have an apathetic father, and a vulnerable daughter, and assault by a prince, and this despicable proposal, this deceitful agreement by these lying sons, this wicked plan by the king, the genocide by these brothers, and now the plunder of this city, capturing widows and orphans, and in light of it all, how many times have we heard God's name mentioned? Not once. There's no prayer. No one seeks the Lord. There's no one building an altar. It's just a spiritual descent into hell. The sons return with their swords bloody and their pockets full and women and children crying behind them and finally Jacob speaks. Better late than never. Is he going to call his family together? Hey boys, we need to We need to repent. This is wrong. No, look what Jacob says in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. You notice Jacob, Daddy Jacob, makes no comment about the mass murder that just took place, about the enslavement of the widows, about the terrified children. Jacob's thinking about, what are the neighbors going to think now? We're going to have to move, guys. Right? Yeah, this is really hard on me. Right? Right? Well, that's kind of the problem in the first place. They're not where they're supposed to be. Had they obeyed God and got on to Bethel, this never would have happened. Well, the boys, you notice, aren't going to back down to dad. They have no respect for him anymore, as you see in verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This never would have happened, dad, if, if you didn't try to sell our sister to this abuser. So you put all this together and you think, how does this happen? How, how did we get to this point? I think, I think there's probably two reasons. One I've already alluded to. They're not where they're supposed to be. They've come up short. When we compromise with sin, it's always going to cost us more than we thought. We give ourselves to the things of this world, just a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, but we're gonna take, it's going to take us farther than we want to go. And dads and, and parents, when you teach our kids that life is about academic accomplishment or life is about uh, you know, being able to hit a curveball or, or, God forbid, kick a soccer ball, right? If you teach your kids that, that life is about the, the, the career that you want and all these things, if this is what we're putting in our kids, let's not be surprised in 20 years they have no room for God in their life. It's little by little by little by little. Just coming up short, and we keep getting tar- farther and farther and farther away. We must do what God calls us to do and go where God commands us to go. And when we do, life goes well for us generally. Uh, th- one of the reasons they have this, this happens is they're not where they're supposed to be. But I think the chief reason why something like this happens is the realization that sin is not the problem out there or out there. It's the problem in here. It's in us. It is not simply that we live amongst sinful people. It is that we are sinful people. I, 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 one thing I find refreshing about this, if I could use that about this chapter, is that the Bible is stunningly honest. Right? If these simply humans write in this book, they don't put this story in the Bible. Right? You, don't, you don't write about these credible failings of the founders of your faith. You read every other ancient tale. There's no stories like this about the founders of their religion. They, all their stories about virtue and accomplishments and faith. Right? I mean, what if we read like George Washington was a terrible liar, a womanizer, a cheat, a thief, and uh, trampled on the innocent. Right? Well, we don't have stories like that. We have cherry trees and, and things like that. And we think, well, a great men founded our nation. And we tell stories of virtue and accomplishments. The Bible comes and it tells us about their worst days. Look who I chose to be mine. Look at the people who have committed these terrible acts. And it does so, so that it might be a mirror for us. That we can see, okay, this is in them, and it's in us as well. I think God not only wants us to know this story, he wants us to know this truth about ourselves, so that we don't think we solve our problems simply by getting rid of the world, getting away from the world, getting in our little holy huddles. Because the problem is in here. The solution, therefore, is what? Well, it's for God to work. As we turn lastly and quickly to scene number three, grace from above. And we don't see it in this chapter, but I draw your attention to the next verse of chapter 35. And I'm so thankful it's here. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And I, finally, we have God showing up. I, I, I find it utterly stunning that God doesn't give up on these people. I mean, they are as sinful as they possibly can be. I mean, they are, it's just, this is just as wicked as, I, I don't think we could come up with a more wicked story than this for us. And God still shows up and he says, Okay, guys, you ready to follow me now? You ready to do what I've said? Because you've tried it your way now. How's it going? Everything going well? I do not think so. So let's repent and let's start obeying because God says, I'm not done with you yet. He said, don't you wonder why doesn't he give up on them? You would, wouldn't you? I certainly would. Like a long time ago. I would say, I'm moving on to somebody else. He doesn't because God is a God of grace, not of merit. He's a God who longs to pour out mercy. These are not deserving people. These are God's sovereign choice to be gracious to terrible sinners. And he comes to them here and he says, Have you lived long enough in the sty of your rebellion? Have you seen what your ways bring about? Are you now ready to come with me and let me show you what life is supposed to be about? And he, he longs to give them grace, even in the middle of their disobedience. And I think he still does with us. He doesn't leave us when we leave him. And so I don't know where you are, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know. Some of you might be dabbling in sin. Some of you might be coming up short of where you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to be doing. And I wonder, even in this, if that God might show you a bit of yourself that call you and call you to himself today that God would say, let me work in your life. You know we're not supposed to be here. You know I want you over here. I need you doing this. I want, you to, I want to bless you. I recently heard a story told by a pastor who, of his friend Michael. Uh, Michael grew up in a, with an alcoholic and abusive father. And Michael's mom became a Christian. And, and Michael's mom would sneak out on Sunday mornings and go worship at a local church. Eventually she led Michael to Christ and then Michael's sisters to Christ. And Now, now the whole family was Christian except dad. And, and dad found out he was furious. Uh, the beatings on his wife and his children just intensified once they became Christians. He demanded that they stop worshiping at that local church. And so what they would do is they would wait until their dad fell asleep from uh, his alcohol. And then m- mom and the kids, they would sneak down in the basement and mom would would lead them in Bible study and teach her children about Jesus. One night they they came across uh, the passage on Jesus' command to be baptized. And they realized they've trusted Jesus, but they needed to obey God and, and to receive the sign of the covenant and be baptized. The problem, of course, is baptism is a public statement. I mean, we, baptism is given to the church, not something you do secretly in a, in a bathtub somewhere. It's something that the church does and it's a public declaration that I belong to Christ. But to do so would infuriate their father. And yet this this family, they decided to do it anyway. And so the the father went on one Sunday, had been drinking and began to beat Michael's mom, grew tired and fell asleep. And Michael and his mom and his sister snuck out of the house, still bruised, and headed off to the Sunday evening baptismal service at their church. And as they drove, Michael looked over at his mom, and he said the purple welt on her face was growing by the minute. And he said, Mom, we're studying the Bible. We're growing in Christ. We don't have to go down and do this tonight. We're, we're doing enough. Mom turned to her son and said, Son, when you follow Jesus, you will either go all the way or not at all. And they went all the way. That night they were baptized. And years later, because of their persistent devotion to Jesus, their father repented of his sin and became a Christ follower too. I praise God for that that witness that says, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to follow him all the way. And I think about Jacob's family. They didn't go all the way. And it led to this great mess, this, this terrible, terrible day. But I will tell you, as bad as Genesis 34 is, it's not the worst day. See, this family, this same family, in fact, their children would commit another slaughter. Not of evil men, but of the one perfect man who ever lived upon this earth. His name is Jesus. And they wouldn't just run him through with a sword. They would torture him first. And then murder him upon a cross. And God, and his sovereignty, would take that in- incredible act of evil, the-, the most heinous evil ever committed, and use it to save the very evil people that committed it. And including you and I, who commit our fair share of sin. Saving people like Jacob and Levi and Simeon and me and you. And, and I wonder if, if on that day, when Jesus was walking to that cross, if he was ever tempted to come up short. Right? Like if Jesus said, you know, I, I left heaven, I, I became a man, I've been, I've been here, I've been guiding them, I've been teaching them, I've been leading them, I've been loving them, I've been shepherding them, I've been healing them, isn't that enough? Right? Isn't that good enough? Do I, do I really need to go all the way and actually die for them? Well, evidently Jesus Knew as well. That when you follow God, you either go all the way or not at all. And I don't know, my brothers and sisters, if there's anyone here who's just kind of fooling themselves and stopping short. And maybe some of you are living in Shechem. You're not where God wants you to be. Maybe there's areas in which you're compromising. Maybe there's areas you stop short. I pray that God would bring about Conviction that he, you would know that what God wants for you is the best. So why don't we bow our heads? If you, we'll just bow our heads together right now as we end our time in God's word. I, I, I just want to ask you as your heads are bowed um, to pray in your heart. You do this right now where you're sitting. Lord, am I doing, am I stopping short of where you've called me to be? Am I not doing what you've asked me to be? Am I, am I doing what you've told me I should not do? Some of you already know immediately where these areas of compromise are in your life. You might even pray, please forgive me, Father, and help me to do what you've asked me to do. Help me to stop doing what you've told me not to do. Help me to talk to a brother and sister that I might have help in obedience. Help me to rise up and go to Bethel that I might experience the life that you have for me. And maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you're coming up short, yielding your life to Jesus. Maybe you're religious, but you have no real relationship with him. I pray that even now in your heart that you would repent and trust in Jesus. That you would rise and go to Bethel, the house of God. That You might find a savior there named Jesus. For the Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead we will be saved Father we're thankful for your word even though it's hard to consider we pray that it would be a mirror that we might stare in and we might see ourselves a little bit better and that we might respond I trust there are areas in which we might grow Areas in which we might more fully surrender over to you. Maybe it has to do with our money. Maybe it has to do with our relationships. Maybe it has to do with our children, or spouse, or parents, our work. Father, I pray that we would recognize that dabbling in sin takes us places we don't want to go. It takes us away from the life you want to give us. I think you want to pour out your blessings upon us. You you want to guide us into the the good life. I pray that we would embrace that. Help us to have the ability to repent where we need to. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen.